0: Serbia has supposedly emerged from its 1990s wars with a new mandate to transform itself from a belligerent society to one marked by peace and psychic good health. The country's prosperity and political good fortunes have been taken to hang on how seriously it seeks to foster values of reconciliation, as these might be informed by a deep lying shift of national consciousness. This paper asks. What is involved in this claim, in the idea that national well-being is dependent not on brute economic or social measures, but on a change of mindset? Its ethnography addresses a particular conjunction between the political imperative placed in the Serbs to reassess their recent past, and what my informants in Belgrade and across Serbia call, in a more medicalized register, their mental hygiene. The analysis revolves around several further questions. In what circumstances can people construe their state of mind as a political good or as an economic, even military, asset? When do they construe their state of mind as a form of psychological defence? What connections exist in people's minds between physical and mental security? How does consciousness get politicised? What are the technologies of mental health at both an individual and societal level? How are are certain technologies used to consolidate or contest contemporary politics in Serbia? Do you want me to bring this? Uh, Okay. Uh, So I'll start with a capture the history of the political background uh, to the demand that Serbs must change their mindset. The history will be um, presented in both a compressed and... uh, Broadbrush Serbia's place in Europe in the aftermath of its three 1990s wars has often seemed in doubt. The so-called bulldozer revolution uh, of October 5th, 2000, overthrew Milosevic and supposedly set the country on a path to liberal democracy. Since then, six governments have taken turns directing Serbia. Negotiations on Serbia's eventual accession to the European Union have dragged... The chief stumbling block in the first few years of the process was simply that, according to the terms of both European Union and international policy, Serbia refused to confront its past or exercise its wartime guilt. Nor have all of its holdouts been aligned with the interests or political parties associated with Milosevic's government or its rump. Many hoping for the radical post for democratic renewal of Serbia have at times denigrated or just despaired of post-conflict reconciliation as set up as a condition of Serbia's Europeanisation or normalisation. When Kosovo declared independence in 2008, the then-ruling Democratic Party took a risk with its policy of re-establishing cordial relations with the European Union in espousing a strict anti-secessionist policy. What many international observers condemned as retrograde was broadly understood by many, by various factions of Serbian society, as a conscious attempt at nation building. Even if the Democratic Party won support for this stance, however, a series of corruption and other scandals soured the Serbian publi- public on their leadership. In the 2012 parliamentary elections, the Democrats barely clambered over the 5% threshold needed to be represented in the parliament. With some of the electorate holding out for a white vote, favouring candidates not besmirched by allegations of previous offences, the public rather returned a government composed almost entirely of former Milošević loyalists. Surprisingly, the government, headed by Prime Minister Aleksandar Vucic, President of the Serbian Progressive Party, went on to promote itself as rational and pragmatic, concerned above all to shed the national obsession with the loss of Kosovo, and to orient Serbia towards its international future. It is likely that this radical change of policy won the election for the progressives. People responded to a formerly nationalistic party for the first time, admitting its mistakes. What could testify more clearly to their willingness to reform? Further, Prime Minister Vucic was insisted that in order to thrive, Serbia needed above all to change its mindset. And I quote. Our biggest problem is not whether we will have money or not, whether we will be able to fight corruption and criminality, which we will. Our biggest challenge will be to change our own mindset, to change our attitudes toward challenges in life. Under Vucic's government, the state began to yield to various EU accession conditions, ultimately leading to the signing, of the Brussels uh, Agreement with Pristina, taken by many as a stepping stone towards the recognition of an independent Kosovo. In turn, Brussels' bureaucrats came to praise the new government for its commitment to the EU, international and integration agenda. The most recent European Parliament official documents, for example, describe Serbia as a country taking an active and constructive role in aligning its legislation to the requirements of the EU. Yet two years after the elections, most people seem to have fallen out of love with the government. They doubt how deep a transformation can be wrought in a society or whether the government's call for a change of mentality can significantly affect the dispositions of its citizenry. For many, the European Union, I quote, sees only what they want to see, meaning they care more for bureaucratic box ticking than for any change that has positive impact on people's lives. The charges brought that the new elite is only paying lip service to the EU, while skating over the legacies of the past. Most particularly, the government is accused of turning away from the real situation on the ground. Ever raising poverty, a budgetary deficit, untouched criminal networks, opaque and incompetent public administration, a wrecked public health infrastructure, a corrupt judiciary and all kinds of discrimination. Vucic has, been, has personally been criticised, both publicly and in private, as a predatory, lying despot. Popular TV and radio shows that once won a claim for their forensic analysis of domestic and foreign politics, are now subject to interference on a daily basis, discriminated against, censored, criminalised or simply shut down. The Prime Minister is taken to demand a kind of idolatry too, and as such, his calls for a reformation of national consciousness are received by many as a hideous charade. One particularly tenacious set of which its critics are a group of intellectuals identifying themselves as belonging to Druga Serbia, or some kind of other Serbia, or second Serbia. These critics single out for mockery the Prime Minister's call for mind reformation. Securing a positive future, they claim, can happen only through acquiring a genuine peace of mind about the past, and not through some phony New Age corporate claims. Vucic and his opponents do share a theme, but differ in their approach to how Serbians can finally reconcile themselves to the wars. There are other reasons, I believe, that people take exception to the government's call for Serbs to adopt a new mode of self-scrutiny and openness to change. More than 23 years after the onset of the wars, and 14 after Milosevic's fall, the energies that sustained both nationalistic and anti-nationalistic fervour seem to have abated. The country appears to be sinking again into a dreadful political and economic stages. Some feel guilty, frustrated, ashamed, others carefree. Many desire justice yet feel that this is almost an impossible wish. It is as if they lack the confidence to express forthright political demands, couching these instead and phrasing their hopes in a register of wishfulness or fantasy. It was common during the wars to talk of the emotional and ideological costs of being Serbian. My respondents would often describe themselves as apathetic, willfully blind to to, to local politics, proud or ashamed of their war activism. Now, though, a different mood seems to have taken hold, Not just of exhaustion, but of rudderless uncertainty. Many people complain that their lives have been imbalanced for too long. Nothing meaningful has changed. Only the country's infrastructure is even more run down than it was in the wars, said one respondent. The more recent period is understood not as, as healing, but as shameful, wearing. While many want to demystify wartime nationalism, increasingly felt as a historical and political burden... They often resist the manner in which they feel their projects of reconciliation and of European integration are forced upon them. Once the feeling that the West was economically blockading and emotionally blackmailing them was widely voiced. Now many seem to feel cut adrift. It's as if the world has forgotten about them. No one's there to offer them a hand up. Many people I have been following over the last 12 years of intermittent fieldwork in Serbia seem overcome by this kind of latitude. However, ruckety, Belgrade still gives off a creative vibe. It's a place you can meet passionate people offering genuine engagements and often pithy insights into the local situation. But listening carefully to my last five years of interviews, I've been struck by the frequency of people's references to exhaustion or torpor. Most of my interviewees look healthy enough, but many conversations leave me with the impression that people that I'm talking to are entirely exhausted, fatigued, running on empty, that their energy is damned within them or has somehow leached away. Now some claim that they have been worn down by their political ecology, an environment that they describe as impure, stagnant or treacherous. Others do not always respond well to the idea that the Serbs' creativity and resourcefulness have become as depleted as the country's struggling economy. And again, others seem too helpless to raise much of a protest. Although they habitually brush away any suggestion that they are doing badly themselves, self-regard at least seems an unassailable psychological category, they often describe others, friends, colleagues, relatives, neighbours, as lethargic, listless. And I'll quote now. We had a class reunion the other month, 25 years after we graduated from high school. Goodness me, I couldn't recognize most people. Everyone seemed so terribly weary. All these ladies with immaculate names and makeup, interesting, lovely, but they looked so hard beaten, worn down. It's as if there were creases in their quick gestures. And all these strong men, now helpless and exhausted, what a bunch of losers. First, they boasted how successful and entrepreneurial they had been over the past decade. But by the end of the evening, they admitted they were working on projects, meaning that they were unemployed, financed by their wives. Sure, life sucks and everyone goes through bad patches, sure. But it's like their lives are stuck on the same scene, reassuring the crowd that they're on the point of going back to the jobs from which they had been sacked. Some of them actually didn't look that bothered, actually, they looked quite comfortable. But I guess this is what you get in a generally exhausted, abused, brown-bitten society. People are simply not ready anymore to pull all their eggs in the same basket when the society doesn't back up any decent initiative. Many people I know feel totally resigned, too tired to argue or even defend the high ideals they once had about themselves and their careers. I mean, I can understand why so many of them are lying low, just conserving their strength. You can't succeed in this country with a normal working ethos anyway. And it's not only that people feel exhausted, they are literally unhealthy, psychologically and physically ill, injured, contaminated. And I don't mean only chemically contaminated, but mentally too. End of In this particular conversation, my interviewee, a 40-year-old engineer and father of three with thick and wavy hair, known for his practicality, refused to be drawn on what he meant by mental and chemical contamination. It became clear, though, in our later exchanges that he was using a phrase, an argument, accessed by many in their accounts of contemporary Serbia. The claim is that Serbia has been spoiled beyond recall, not only in its psychological makeup, but also contaminated in its chromosomal and genetic pool. Let me explain. In March 1999, NATO began its military operation against the country during the Kosovo War. The operation consisted of the NATO not backed by any UN Security Council resolution, bombing Serbia for 78 days. The air campaign targeted mainly military installations, but nine incidents involved attacks on non-military targets. As a result, more than 500 civilians died and 1,000 were injured. The number of incidents and deaths that was reported diverged sharply. International reports, it is believed, routinely quoted low numbers, while local reports inflated figures for immediate victims of the bombing. (coughs) Besides reporting these incidents, the Serbian press posed other disturbing questions concerning the allies' conduct of the war. The then Yugoslav authorities accused NATO of using about 50,000 rounds of depleted uranium ammunition along the Kosovo border with Albania. And against seven targets in Serbia and one in Montenegro, causing a cancer epidemic, of what some have termed or what some have termed Balkan War Syndrome. Depleted uranium (DU) is a byproduct of enrichment for the production of nuclear weapons and reactor fuel. 1.7 times heavier than lead, DU is frequently added to munitions to enable them to punch straight through solid objects. The rounds break on impacts to spread a fine cloud of radioactive uranium oxide. Survey teams in Serbia, Kosovo, Bulgaria, Montenegro and other neighbouring areas claim to have identified radioactive dust in the wind, in groundwater, in surface water and in soil. Though NATO officials have insisted that the depleted uranium used in the bombings was virtually harmless, these denials have not put an end to speculation that the uranium is responsible for the enormous upsurge of leukemia, lymphoma, chronic fatigue, osteoarthritis, and several bowel problems in Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Croatia, Macedonia, and other parts following the bombardment. Such claims were reiterated constantly in the interviews I've been conducting since 2003 and 2004. An informant of mine who died in 2006 of carcinoma of the pancreas used to argue for example, all these people diagnosed with tumour in their bowels, lungs or glands should thank NATO for their, for their conditions. Indeed, many have always seemed ready to allocate blame for their own and others' injuries to the NATO intervention. This is possibly one way of shifting guilt. Yet, in numerous other conversations, people have resolutely dismissed the idea that depleted uranium may be connected to their own or society's state of exhaustion. And then again, I quote... You can't blame NATO for all the ills that have befallen Serbia. It would be ridiculous to claim that we are victims. These kinds of claims just add to the stigma of Serbia as a deplete place, worn out, conflict-ridden. What we really have to do is to dispel these stereotypical notions that exoticize us. This place has many more legacies than than only those connected to the 1990s conflicts. If there is a crisis of morale here, it is connected with the fact that we are living far worse far worse nowadays than we did back in the 1970s and 1980s in so-called socialist times. And people still can't believe that this is happening to them. This, the memories of better times, is what is contaminating their mind, not all the chat about depleted uranium and victimhood. End of quote. Elsewhere, I have discussed of a range of practices relating to conceptions of health and illness in Serbia, suggesting that... These serve as a mode by which Serbia's post conflict transition may be both conceptualized and brought about. I have explicitly broached the representation of Serbia as a physically unfit, emotionally dysfunctional society, asking whether such a depiction serves to rehabilitate or further pathologize society. In what follows, I want to further unpack this notion of contamination, which in the narratives I can now. I'll now analyse manifests itself both in people's psyches and bodily states. <clears throat> Regardless of how we choose to analyse the different arguments put forward, for example by the Serbian Prime Minister or his critics on why some supposed Serbian mindset ought to be changed, there would seem there would seem little room for disagreement that these arguments are metaphorical. Calls for the transformation of the Serbian mentality are meant figuratively. There is, however, an ever-growing group of people who believe that the need for societal and mind reform is not merely a political and rhetorical tool, but a matter needing to be understood literally and taken up practically. In this view, Serbia must change its mentality precisely because of the depredations visited on the country chemically and psychologically. Serbia, so it is claimed, is embroiled in a multidimensional economic, technological, cultural, environmental and geophysical war. Most problematically, ever since early 1990s, it has been drawn into highly sophisticated psychic, or more precisely, neocortical war, against antagonists seeking no less than the erasure of Serbian national consciousness and junking of the Serbs' cultural inheritance. In other words... Serbia needs to change its mindset and defend its consciousness because someone is already doing it. The idea that Serbia is fighting a neocortical war is not new. In the nineteen nineties, such claims were propagated amongst others by a collection of army officers, public intellectuals, parapsychologists, healers and other figures going under the name Group sixty nine. The argument proposed was that although the main fronts of the wars of the 1990s were in Croatia, Kosovo, Bosnia, certain individuals and organisations from the West represented the real adversaries of the Serbian people in stoking former Yugoslavia's conflicts. Serbia's ultimate enemies came from dark global centres, as it were, and represented a new world order. The proponents of this argument borrowed the concept of neocortical warfare from the military analyst Richard Szafransky. Szafransky designated the term in 1994 to describe a method of warcraft drawing on various psychological techniques to influence the brain's wiring. In Serbia, the phrase neocortical war came to stand for a set of practices that sought to manipulate the whole nation, to manipulate people's brainwaves, to influence their values and beliefs, to warp their reasoning and affect their behaviour. Those methods would swarm up people's minds and morale and induce them to accept ideas contrary to their true interests. In this view, Serbia's enemies had clearly adopted these all-channel military t- tactics in order to weaken the nation during the Yugoslav wars. Group 69 claimed they had found non-violent ways to fend out these attacks. They would engage the psychological and electromagnetic weaponry targeting the Serbs with their own technology of mind, weaving psychic force and electronics in a psychological shield, they claimed. The Serbian practitioners of neocortical defense had allegedly mastered the following techniques. They were able to detach harmful energy fields from thoughts and objects, they could switch the magnetic field around certain strategic military or civic points and could mindfully divine a nation's intentions through mental patterns which, like holographic traces, could be passed on and imprinted on the natural world. Practitioners were able to create mental patterns so self-conscious they became representable through, for instance, focusing on loving and respecting their ancestors, deepening their knowledge by reflecting on historical archetypes, by remaining true to the path of Serbian Orthodox mysticism. Deploying a rhetoric that, while highly specific in terms of military strategy, was both esoteric and religious, they asked for Serbia to defend itself not just on its battlefields, but through its peoples exercising mental hygiene. The aim of saving Serbian souls and fortifying the national psyche further drew on the scientific legacy of Nikola Tesla. In the immediate aftermath of the 1990s wars, the Serbian political left, largely uh, with the agreement of the general public, entirely deprecated Group 69's storehouses of images as absurd and morally tainted, the vestiges of nationalism. When people responded emotionally to the group's theories of mind-hacking, it tended to be with shame which time the topic of neocortical defence dropped off the radar. It was ignored, or it could be dismissed thoughtlessly. In Serbia today, however, a growing number of people seem to be ressociating formerly abandoned metaphors of neocortical defence. The actual Group 69 seemed to have gone underground, but certain individuals allegedly connected to its 90s instantiation, such as Svetozaradisic and Spasovlajic, have begun to crop up as regular guests on certain TV and radio stations, driving up their workshop, presentations and book audiences. Broadly speaking, their talks, while often saturated with references to patriotism, seem distinct from the nationalistic ideology of the past. They do air, however, on television and radio stations known for their nationalist agendas presenting themselves as as info-warriors, or inforatnici, essential truth-tellers about their nation, these outlets regularly host people from the far-right political movements. The programmes return to a handful of topics. Guests are skating about the romance of the Serbian Prime Minister and EU officials. They oppose Kosovo's independence. They voice their contempt for American democracy. Suggests that all NGOs working in the cultural or so- social sectors are fifth columnists, manned by traitors in the pay of alien powers. They stress the importance of the Cyrillic alphabet and Serbian Orthodox Church for national culture, and promote traditional healing, contemplation, and mindfulness. One recent hot topic in these media is massively destructive floods that have hit Serbia and Bosnia in May 2014, a phenomenon laid at the door at uh, of the Harp system, uh, this is the American um, High Frequency acti- Active Auroral Research Program, a system for altering the ionosphere, according to the military, American military, to enhance communication, and according to the Serbs, to manipulate um, enemy countries' weather. These themes, notwithstanding, the most frequent topic remains the endless analysis of a new global order in which dominant power. Has come to rest with so called neocorticals, meaning those using neocortical war to harm others. Many of these TV and radio shows are based geographically in the south of Serbia, Kosovo, and Srpska Krajina, the regions most heavily bombed during the NATO intervention. Both listeners and reporters will come from these areas. One surprising feature of the revival of these ideas of mental protection and psychic self sufficiency is that their proponents proponents number not just nationalists, but also people who have in the past rejected the ideas as delusional and paranoid. Over the last three years, I have encountered a number of educated, thoughtful individuals, both living in Serbia and expats, leftists and anti-nationalists, who are becoming increasingly less embarrassed about their adherence to the doctrines of the neocortical defence. The same people who mock mental hygiene in public, in relation to the war, will offer in private conversation something along these lines. And I actually quote. The All this talk may sound redundant, exotic, paranoid, but it's actually not so hard to believe. We can't laugh away every strange-sounding piece of information. It's become fashionable these days to discredit every non-standard way of thinking, to term it conspiratorial. But then... Everyone agrees that people all around the world are constantly brainwashed, manipulated in their thoughts and behaviour. Mental defence is simply an attempt to counteract this brainwashing by paying careful attention to the information we feed ourselves on a daily basis. It is an invitation to be mindful about how we think about the world. But really, here, I at least, get the sense that the people putting this forward genuinely care for Serbia. It is not a gesture of schadenfreude in the guise of concern, that we get so often from outside, but a real attempt to do something about our situation. End of quote. And as someone else jokingly commented, I quote, Well, the image of neocortical warriors with microwave weaponry in their hands at least raises a smile. No one can say that, it's not, that it, is, it is not imaginative. But you know, who knows? Everything is possible. The idea of national psyche is not so cheesy, after all. As the late Edouard Lussan wrote... I say nothing is true and everything is alive. End of quote. It would be probably safe to suggest that these ideas of mental hygiene in Serbia will appear imaginative, exotic even, both to certain sections of Serbian society and to any wider audience, like the audience of this talk, encountering this material. Yet various works in anthropology. Debunk any idea that this kind of mental culture is only a rare, local, or exotic phenomenon. We can contextualize the Serbian na- material in treatments from across the social sciences on the importance of understanding na- nations' psychological makeup. The most famous anthropological movement concerned to develop a set of claims linking the individual to society was the Culture and Personality School of the early 20th century. The scholars of this movement, whose programme shifted in later years to studies of national character, proposed, for example, that studying cultural patterns, types of emotional ethos, the structure and function of mental life, and transmission of the unconscious and conscious aspects of a culture to the next generation is crucial in the understanding of any society. Both the cultural and personality um, movement and studies of national character have come in for some heavy flack. Yet, while many anthropologists are still sceptical of any attempts to conflate individual psychological setup and dispositions and the supposed national mentality, much exciting contemporary work in anthropology, from the subfields of psychological anthropology, neuroanthropology, the anthropology of self and cognitive anthropology, is in many ways heir to culture and personality precedents. Students of mental culture also can't avoid Gustav Houtman's book Mental Culture in Burmese Crisis Politics that, in a different take from CP studies, argues that mental culture in Burma should be seen as a historical, a cultural phenomenon. Houtman describes the practices of vipassana, contemplation, and samatha, meditation, as central to Burmese political ideology and political conflicts between the military regime and democracy movement. Similarly, the extensive and thoughtful body of work examining notions of paranoia and conspiracy, the paranormal and contemporary all-out war, as well as the anthropology of subjectivity in the context of the revival of esoteric religious traditions, shows that an obsession with mindset and mental hygiene in general, and particularly in war and post-war settings, is not singular and strange, but occurs in the form of different practices across the world. Literature examining the impact of radical social and political change, economic hardship, structural violence, natural disasters and conflicts may equally eliminate concerns with mental hygiene. These contexts can provoke or just contextualise denial or claims of victimisation in relation to the psychopolitics of well-being. And I here mean, you know, I really relate to all kinds of work by Vina Das, by um, Keiko Nishimura, by Adriana Petrina, and by Mary Calder, by George Marcus, by um, Western Sanders, there are loads of books written on paranoia, on conspiracy, and post-conflict, on the uh, importance of looking carefully at, uh, claims rea- at the claims related, the claims to mindset. Importantly, regardless of whether different anthropological theories value code the concept of national mentality as useful, misleading, or a dangerous one, no one doubt, no one can doubt its validity as an ethnographic term in Serbia. When describing what they mean by Serbian mentality, my informants will use many different names. Mindset, mentality, mindfulness, national psyche, psychological makeup, neocortical defense, mental well being, spiritual exhaustion are only a few that I have described for the purposes of this paper. Even when people do not take time to articulate at length what they mean by national mentality or societal mindset, these tags will be used as if self explanatory. They're common idioms and the ordinary change of self-examination. Sometimes when people say the national mindset, they mean themselves individually or collectively. People's accounts of local and world affairs will typically have recourse to expressions like the Serbian mentality, American mentality, Israel mentality, Russian mentality, even Chernobyl or post-Tsunami or Fukushima mentality. The apprehension of these kind of entities is thus crucial in narrating both self-understanding and understanding of others. We will then not, I think, get anywhere in grasping the repertoire of images of neocortical defence by relativising it, being intellectually cynical about it, or trying to pass it off as exotic. People have real fears about how depleted uranium will affect their and the nation's health are serious about the idea that Serbia's national fortunes, post-conflict, will depend on changing its mindset. We need some different ways of making out the logic of the connection between these concerns and fears and, post- and the postulates of neocortical way. But even if we said Serbs' preoccupation with neocortical defence was exotic, what would exotic mean in that context? In his 2011 Huxley Lecture, Bruce Kupfer invites anthropologists to rethink the concept of exoticism, arguing, I quote, "...the exotic is not that which is merely different or strange, an artifact or an astonishing practice. More than difference, the exotic and its recognition have to do with the challenge to understanding and can be as much a property of the familiar, or what appears to be known, as of that which is external or outside." And further, he writes, The exotic is both new or original information and is itself either active in the revision of conceptual and theoretical understanding or else instrumental to the formation of a radical new understanding. I find these words especially suggestive in the view of my ethnography. Following Kupfer, the current Serbian discourse on mentalities and the prospect of national mental reformation it's not only exotic in serving up a colourful, if not tired, stereotype of the country. They may, they may also be exotic in their capacity for generating new knowledge about how Serbian social reality is imagined and experienced. People in Serbia say they are tired, that they are a standstill. They want change, especially a change in personal or national mindset. The backdrop backdrop to these hopes and to the attrition of the ability to hope are negotiations on the enlargement of the European Union, worries about the economy and fears of actual contamination from radioactive pollutants. An inquiry into ideas of healthy mentalities and psychological security in Serbia reveals these phenomena as deeply caught up in contorted versions of patriotism, nationalism and opposition to nationalism and the still contentious past. What is it particularly about Serbia that insists that individual or group state of mind is explicable with reference to cultural, economic or political contexts? Yes, there is political uncertainty and economic hardship. But why should these necessarily translate in a personal register to mental blockage or stasis, anxiety, latitude or torpor to exhaustion of the spirit? What does the fact that Serbs describe their bodies and minds through idioms of tiredness and decay tell us about the Serbian national psyche? In their 2009 work, Empire of Trauma, Didier Fasan and Richard Rechtman described trauma as our normal means of relating present suffering to past violence. Trauma, they argue, is both the scar a tragic event leaves on an individual victim Witness or the perpetrator, and the collective imprint on a group of an experience that may have occurred decades, generations, even centuries ago. It would be easy to suppose that the Serbs' lassitude is a manifestation of a period of post conflict. Even so, many people I've worked with have expressed discomfort at a degree to which they still feel emotionally and politically possessed by the war. Victims, perpetrators, or both. Numerous interlocutors claim to be ostracised or stigmatised for actions in the past. More particularly, many want to understand it and to come to reckoning with it, even though this sometimes seems to take the form of various graduated kinds of denial. Importantly, they also want to move beyond the past. Broadly speaking, the Serbian public is divided between those who still talk about the war and post-war years as traumatic either criticising Serbia in the wars or claiming the country really a victim and wrongly understood as a perpetrator, and those who believe the issue is long dead, that the wars no longer affect their, their, their everyday lives, or if they do, then the current economic crisis does as much. How necessarily must people be determined by culture? My own reading of debates over the need for a new national psychology takes them as a kind of inverted or alternative way of giving testimony, making reparation and enduring. Narratives of blame aimed at NATO for dropping enriched uranium may be one of the few modes permissible for the kinds of evidence-making that might substantiate claims about the contemporary state of Serbia. Other modes of narration and narratability are closed down through denial or just blocked by exhaustion. Or take another example. Unable to claim victimhood from the traumas they survived or witnessed during the 1990s, some appear now to be casting themselves as victims of the New World Order. They do so in terms that they are paranoid, ambivalent, frequently steeped in contradiction and groupthink, as the means of reflecting on their past and considering what they can hope for, both for their society and as individuals the effects of trauma often come with a delay. In these terms, Serbia is still a post-conflict society, when living through a particular temporality marked by fatigue and endurance. Yet, there is more to Serbs' fatigue than everything that happened to them over the past two decades. The tiredness that creeps up on people is also, I would claim, an index of anxiety over what may the future bring. It is a registration of yet unseen temporal relations. Serbia, as I have shown, is officially on a route to accession to the European Union. Many would hold it back or contest the ideology underpinning its joining. Many Serbs feel they are forgotten on on the fringes of Europe. In that sense, one might understand certain takes on the New World Order and on Serbia's chemical and psychological contamination as paranoid ways of relocating, that is, centering the paranoid narrator in the world. Through hyperbolic articulations of global politics, some Serbs seem to bring various lobesy of power, those of the despised yet fascinating neocorticals, for example, closer to themselves. Or else, they distance themselves from certain versions of history. For instance, from the 1990s, wars as solely an expression of global power relations, or as a self-interested action of the West in targeting Serbia's natural and infrastructural resources. Awareness, then, may also be understood as a demand for position. Many people whose stories I've described in this paper talk about their own and society's latitude precisely in relation to their sense of having been abandoned. Gesturing warily, saying that they are tired, it seems they either want to solicit help or else negate any need for succour. As Epstein writes, fatigue serves as a formal goading, while for the art historian Elena Garfinkel, Tiredness is not inaction, but instead a reflexive holding in abeyance, the body waiting for itself to recharge, re-energize. Gilles Deleuze understands tiredness as belated and as a state that lies on the verge of the future. For Gorfinkel, tiredness suggests a temporality that is always sensed. She says, fatigue, weariness, tiredness and exhaustion emerge from a relation to a sense of a time that passes, passes on, and passes through the actor's labouring body, but also never ceases to pass on, to pass through. Or, as she states later in her essay, tiredness is an active, is an active inactivity, fatigue troubles a body's self-knowledge and performs a reflexive questioning of endurability. So it's not antithetical to action, Exhaustion of spirit sits adjacent to or coexists with it. Taking this theoretization on awareness on board, could we conclude that this preoccupation with mental hygiene and mental defence in Serbia is some sort of active, if inverted, emotional and intellectual strategy? The strategy both copes with the past, but also anticipates the future. This perspective reconfigures social fatigue in Serbia not as a burden or something necessitating change, a change of mentality, but a resource for reflection, the ground for a new way of imagining and putting together the country. Even so, judging from the lackadaisical attitude of many of my respondents towards various local and international circumstances, it would be a stretch to suggest that Serbia is not wallowing in apathy, but rather going through a lassitude that speaks of something momentous to come. Many, though, do think in caring for their mental hygiene, they are seeking a new intellectual and spiritual direction, in whatever form this takes. If nothing else, the search for a rec- 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 recalibration for this, of the Serbian national ethos invites or involves the defamiliarization of all kinds of received social truths. In this paper I have ethnographically considered a range of material practices, psychological gestures and rhetorical strategies concerned with the idea of the national psyche in Serbia at a time of political and economic instability. The analysis has shown various political, moral and ideological contortions as these warp and structure the idea of national consciousness and mental hygiene. The investigation opens another central question. How does one study a society that is not only exhausted but also wary of being scrutinised or one ridden with allegedly false stereotypes? How do we research practices and narratives that, though seemingly paranoid and nationalist, are simultaneously critical of conspiratorial and political takes on mental culture? It seems to me that one way of doing it would be not in a spirit of rationalist debunking, seeking to know the economical or political truth of people's fantasies, but in a way that registers the specificity of those fantasies, those hopes and fears. Thanks.